during the liberal years of the 19th century, a question arose uh, regarding Paul's understanding of horticulture. Commentators were making a lot of fuss of how Paul was making use of the olive tree. They pointed out that according to normal procedure, grass must be of branches from a cultivated tree inserted into a wild stock and that the reverse process, as Paul was stating, taking a cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafting it contrary to nature into a cultivated tree would be valueless and, and would never have been performed. In fact, one of the better known commentators, a guy by the name of C.H. Dodd, actually makes a joke of Paul uh, or at Paul's expense at least. He said Paul had the limitations of the town-bred man and he had not the curiosity to inquire what went on in the olive yards which fringed every road he walked. In other words, poor, ignorant city boy. But interesting, interestingly, uh, in fact, some, some scholars would even draw attention to Paul's use of the phrase in verse 24 contrary to nature and say well Paul knew that but he was wanting to use it as an example at the turn of the century great scientist Sir William Ramsey wrote an interesting article which is still quoted 1905 he drew on both ancient at that time and modern at that time authorities of his day. He wrote about how the process that Paul described was still in use in Palestine in exceptional circumstances. It was a customary way to reinvigorate an olive tree that's ceasing to bear fruit. By grafting in a shoot of a wild olive, the sap of the tree ennobles the wild shoot and the tree once again begins to bear fruit. That's what Paul was dealing with. An exceptional circumstance. He was dealing with Israel that had started to fail or had completely failed to bear fruit. And so why not use this method that was in fact contrary to nature, not the normal way. What is contrary that Paul is making reference to is not the grafting, but the belonging. Namely, the shoot that had been cut from the wild olive to which it naturally belonged has been grafted into the cultivated olive tree to which it naturally didn't belong. That's what was contrary to nature. And so Paul develops his allegory as a way to play on the themes of broken off and grafted in and to teach two complementary lessons. The first I emphasized last Sunday. The warning that for you and I as believers, and I think we need to hear this because I'm hearing 
all sorts of people that I know teaching it contrary who never believed things could happen the other way for many years. But I think we need to hear again the warning that if that which is natural to the tree can be broken off, then we too need to be aware that we might be in danger of being broken off. And the key word that Paul uses is persist if we choose not to persist to continue in our belief. Why would we think that God would want to say, well, they believed at one time, so I'm going to always just hold them within this. When that's not what he did with Israel. The second is a promise to the Israelite unbelievers that they could in fact be restored. And I think that's why Paul is using this idea of grafting in olive that's wild to the cultivated tree. He wants to emphasize this whole system or practice that they were aware of that was known as reinvigorating, bringing life back. And I think the assurance of this is drawn from the contrast between the natural and the unnatural branches. Paul's emphasis is that if Gentile believers were cut off of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will Jewish believers, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own tree? In other words, the restoration of Israelites is in fact an easier process than the call to call Gentiles if they would just study their scriptures with an open mind. <clears throat> I shared this week a passage uh, one day on Facebook. And uh, it's a, it, it was from the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it's how their hearts were broken because of everything that had happened in Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus is walking along with them and he starts explaining to them how it's clear in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. And you know, that part is not hard for me to understand. The phrase that caught my mind though that I've pondered on ever since is the fact that it says that Jesus started with Moses and the prophets and showed them everything in the Old Testament concerning himself. I would love to be a part of that Old Testament survey course. To see, because the early church didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. And that's where they continually saw the message of Jesus, the saving message of Jesus. And I think that's what brings us today to the image that I want to share and the word that I want to focus in your mind, and that's this word mystery. 
mystery. Paul's going to begin our text for today by saying that in order that you won't be conceited or wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant of this mystery. Now he had already warned against boasting back in verse 18. He warned against arrogance in verse 20. Now he's warning against conceit. You see, Paul knows that ignorance is the cause of conceit. You would think it'd be the opposite. You'd think that it would be somebody whose intellect is just way up above everybody else that would be conceited. But no. Ignorance is the root of conceit. It's when we have false or fantasy images of ourselves that we grow proud. And conversely, knowledge is conducive to humility. For humility is honesty, not hypocrisy. I I presume that's why my mentor, uh, Dr. Bob Lowry, always insisted that the first principle of interpreting God's Word should be humility. I'm human. You all have heard me say many times, I know that there's something that I am interpreting from Scriptures incorrectly. I don't know what it is or I would change it. But I know that because I'm human, my knowledge is not perfect. And, and when I get to heaven, because I know that it's not anything that regards my salvation, I know that when I get to heaven, one of the writers of the Bible is going to pull me aside and say, Hey, Johnson, let's go for a walk. You know when you were teaching such and such? Uh, that's not what I meant. <laughs> we need to begin with humility. The antidote to pride is truth. And if only the Jewish and Gentile members of the church in Rome could grasp their position with regard to one another in the purpose of God, they would have nothing to boast about. I picked up a book on Friday and I was hoping to have it finished yesterday, but I didn't. A book just on Romans chapter 6. And and Diane quickly pointed out, why are you reading a book on Romans 6? We're on 11 and 12. (laughs) And I said, because my thesis is on Romans 6. Uh, But again, if the Jewish and Gentile believers in the church at Rome would have understood what it meant when they were baptized, that they were baptized into Christ, that they were baptized into His death, they wouldn't have been fighting with each other. Because when we are all in Christ, when we are all one, then we don't have those reasons to fight. So, I hit something here real quick. Excuse me for one second. There we go. We need to understand and Paul wanted us to know especially what the, mem- what the mystery was that would hold us together. And by mystery, he doesn't mean what we think of in terms of mystery. 
That's not what the Bible means when it uses this word. Mysterium. It's not something that's unable to be known or is only known by the initiated. It's not something that's forever uh, mysterious and incomprehensible. In biblical speaking, a mystery is something that was kept hidden for many years, but then God chose to reveal. So it's now known. It was a mystery, but it's now been revealed. And that's what Paul is doing. He is showing what God has revealed about this mystery of the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. So with that in mind, let's go to our text. Lest you be wise or conceited, wise in your own signs. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Notice that he says partial. We sometimes miss that. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Let me go back to what I've been stressing. <clears throat> as regards salvation, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards service... They're beloved for the sake of the forefathers. See how that fits in? It's consistent. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been, now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. Exactly what is the content of the mystery that will nullify the Gentiles' pride? See, in the New Testament, again, that word mysterion is often used in a general way for revelation concerning Christ and the church. But a mystery that was of special importance to Paul was the revelation that God had always intended to include Jews and Gentiles together in the church of Jesus Christ. It's the mystery of salvation. Israel's salvation. Back in Ephesians 3, Paul, Paul emphasizes the fact that God is bringing the Gentiles into the church. But here in Romans 11.25, the emphasis is on the fact that unbelieving Jews may still be brought into the church. More specifically, the mystery focuses on the interdependence 
between the salvation of the Gentiles and that of the Jews. That not only are the Jews and Gentiles united together in the one church, but in accordance with God's plan, each group owes in part its inclusion to the other. That's why I was never able to feel comfortable and accept what I heard my dad many, many times over the years say, we're New Testament Christians. That whole Bible is important to us. We cannot understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. And I think that's spelled out in verse 26 in those three consecutive truths. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in or the fullness of the Gentiles. And this is the manner in which all Israel will be able to be saved. It's not really all Israel will be saved. This is a mystery. Once hidden, now revealed. And the mystery is not just the fact that all Israel will be saved, but rather the way in which it will be saved. Verses 25 and 26a are a kind of summary of what he already said in verses 11 to 24. We cannot assume that the mystery refers only to what's following. It includes the content of the preceding verses. And the heart of the mystery is the next clause. That the hardening would last until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Now what's that mean? Well, combined with the preceding clause and read in the context of verse, verses 11 and 12, verse 15, and verse 18, I think it's clear that the hardening of Israel has something to do with the coming of the full number or the fullness of the Gentiles. And in verse 26a, where the emphasis is usually placed on the word all, and so all Israel will be saved. How many of you have heard that at some point in, in, your, in your past? One of these days, all Israel is going to be saved. Nation of Israel is going to be stored. All of Israel is going to come back. That's not what Paul's saying. The ESV that we read actually takes what is the more grammatically correct and more consistent approach. The emphasis should be on the word so. Taken in the sense of thus, or in this way, in this manner, all of Israel will be saved. In other words, regarding Israel's salvations, Paul's point is how, and not how many. And so in answer to the question how and when, Paul provides the answer. The coming of Jesus. And he quotes Isaiah with a couple of little tweaks to say that the Deliverer will come from Zion. Actually, Isaiah says, to Zion. But, it is in reference to the first coming of Jesus, not the second coming. Yes, it's in the future tense. Will come. 
But that's from Isaiah's standpoint. Not Paul's. And Christ's first coming was just as much from the heavenly Zion as the second will be. And the strongest reason, I think, for taking it to be the first coming of Jesus is the specifically stated purpose for which the Redeemer comes to Zion. Namely, the redemptive acts mentioned by Isaiah and cited by Peter refer not to political restoration. It's not a political restoration of the Jewish nation, but their references to personal salvation of individuals. And that's why Jesus came the first time. To die for the sins of the people and thereby establish a new covenant with them, a covenant to take away their sins. And the covenant to which Isaiah's messianic prophecy refers is therefore the Abrahamic, not the Abrahamic covenant, but it's the new covenant that is prophesied in Jeremiah 31, which was in fact established through the death and the shed blood of Jesus. And the central promise of the new covenant, as Jeremiah stated, was, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. How could that refer to the second coming? See? It's about Jesus' first coming. And that's exactly what Paul is emphasizing in his quote from Isaiah. God covenants to take away the sins of all of Israel, both the remnant as well as the Gentiles who choose to be grafted into that tree by the blood of Christ and by those who trust in Him. And once again, if you look at verse 23, the covenant is conditional. There are so many verses that talk about the importance of those of us who come into that covenant relationship remaining faithful. Now, I'm not afraid. I am not insecure. I have no reason to doubt the security of my belief. I feel totally confident that my salvation is secure. But I also know that God is a gentleman. And He's not going to make me go to heaven just because I confessed at one time that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That if I choose to become willfully disobedient, He's going to allow me to walk away. And that branch is going to be broken off. My confidence comes in the fact that I continue to believe. And, going back to Romans 6, I am not going to choose to live in sin. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to sin. I'm going to make mistakes. But I'm not going to choose to live in sin. It's the difference that I've shared with you many times between the difference between looking out the back window and seeing my kids playing in the mud versus looking out the back window and seeing one of them going for a ball and 
not catching it and sliding into the mud. In one case, I'm probably going to be a little bit upset and tell them to quit playing in the mud. In the other case, I'm going to go out and help get them cleaned up. Now, so the question comes up, why? Why is God so concerned about Israel when they're the ones that chose to not accept His Son, the Messiah? And I think, again, verses 28 and 29 then make that clear. Because of God's love for Israel. Paul never ceases to remind the Gentile Christians that God does have wrath toward the Jews uh, because they chose to reject His Son. But he also doesn't fail to notice that it's how the gospel can then be brought to them. They're enemies, yes, but they're enemies on your account, for your sake. In order to open His kingdom wide to you. Verse 11, verse 12, verse 15. But this is only part of the picture. And actually the lesser part of it. Even though the hardened Jews have chosen to become God's enemies by rejecting the gospel, God still loves them because of that original relationship He established with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And thus He can't just forget them. He can't pretend that that relationship never existed. Even if they no longer have a special role in God's ongoing plan in terms of service, they still occupy a special place in His heart in terms of His desire for their salvation. And so, not that long ago, verse 29 was quoted to me. Well, yeah, but Paul says the gifts and the call are irrevocable. Yes, the gifts and the call were irrevocable. But the gifts and the call that Paul refers to are not the gifts and the call of salvation. They're the benefits described in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, which, though glorious in every respect, are still temporal and non-salvific in terms of themselves. The call, likewise, is not a salvific call. Rather, it refers to the original call to Abraham and thus the call to Israel as a nation to be his special people, to bring about the Messiah. So, Paul says... They're irrevocable. But I don't like that word. And I'll tell you why I don't like that word. Because the Greek word is the word metamelomai. Now, I used the word metamelomai a while back. And I don't know if you remember it. But there are two words for repentance. Metanoia and metamelomai. When Peter says in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, it's the word metanoia, have a change of mind. Metamelomai is usually thought of more in terms of repentance, in terms of a change of heart. 
what Paul is saying here. And he uses what's called the, the alpha negative, the prima alpha. The word is actually ametamelatos. Don't, don't think that they are regretted. It's not something to be repented of. And the point is, is that God must save the Jews because He's made... The, excuse me. The point is not that God must save the Jews because He's made an irrevocable promise to Abraham and company to do so. But the emphasis is, is that God does not regret His choice of Israel as a nation through whom He brought Christ into the world. He's not sorry about that. And despite the centuries of their heartbreaking unfaithfulness and idolatry in Old Testament times, even Hosea is a message of, but I love you. You strayed away. You've, you've gone after a, another spouse. But I love you and I'll take you back. And that's why God still loves them. And Paul begins this whole section with four because the Jews are still beloved because of the patriarchs. Because God has never regretted His Old Testament, His Old Covenant relationship that He established with them. So, just what is God's ultimate purpose if it's not mercy? I have no question that my father loved me dearly. And I have no question that at times I broke my father's heart with choices that I made. I also don't have any question that even though my father was a very strict disciplinarian, that I would not be here today if it weren't for the fact that he was a strict disciplinarian. And I know that although there were times at which I was embarrassed to dress out for phys ed because of the fact that that leather belt that he could so quickly pull out of his pants he had, a, he had an uncanny way of undoing his belt, pulling it out and catching the other end in one motion. He could make a loop out of his belt in one motion. And I'm going to cry and just accept that and understand it. But those welts, those bruises on the back of my legs, did me no eternal physical harm. But they saved me spiritually, eternally. There are times that God brought discipline or allowed discipline to take place. But it was because of His mercy. His wrath was a wrath 
based on the impurity. Jesse and I have been reading again through uh, Deuteronomy. And the idea was to purge all that evil out so that my children wouldn't have to experience it. How many times have you heard someone quote John 3.16 and then just stop? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And just stop. What about verses 17 and 18? For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But... Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Both elements have to be there. And the most marvelous thing of all is that God can use the, dis, the universal disobedience of mankind as a part of His plan to show mercy on all. And by, by explaining how this is so, the paragraph is a proper and striking example of chapter 828 that we read. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. I do not believe that God causes cancer. That is not a part of my understanding of what it means that God is providential. Yes. There we go. God is supreme. And Revelation ends with God being victorious. But who is the prince of this world? Who is the ruler of this world according to Jesus? Not once, but twice. The deceiver. The devil. So if an accident happens, it's not, well, you know, everything's a part of God's plan. No. Now, God can use every bit of that. Mark. Mark will be the first one to tell you that God used his pneumonia type symptoms to get him to the hospital when he normally wouldn't have gone because he couldn't breathe so that they could find his heart problems. Are you hearing me? And I think this is what God shows in terms of His ultimate goal. Even for the hardened Jews. Is that they, if they receive His mercy, they can be saved. So, here's my challenge for you today. I don't know how I didn't get ahead for that one. Here's my challenge for today. We actually need to hear the doxology. 
Because we need to understand our true place. And understand that God's way is right. Verses 33 to 36, the end of chapter 11. The end, by the way, of the theological section of Romans. Starting next Sunday with 12 to 16. It's the practical application of what all of this is meant. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. One commentator has said of this paragraph, like a traveler who has reached the summit of an alpine ascent, the apostle turns and contemplates and his heart is filled with admiration and gratitude and his response to God's work is nothing less than a doxology, a hymn of highest praise to the one who is creator, ruler, and redeemer of all the earth. It's Paul's capstone of these chapters where the overall subject has been God's faithfulness in His dealings with Israel. And the question has been, does the combination of God's original covenant with the patriarchs and Israel's present lostness means that God's been unfaithful and untrue to His word? And the answer is, by means of divine inspiration, emphatically, no. That God's way is right. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today thankful that you chose as a special people, Israel, to bring about the birth of your Son, to bring us the Messiah, to bring us our King for our kingdom. I thank you, Father, that our citizenship is not of this world. Help us to be the kind of citizens you have called us to be. And help us in love to reach out to those of our brothers and sisters who are ethnically Jewish to bring them to a knowledge of the fact that your son Jesus was in fact the Messiah that they had looked for so that they too can experience the fullness of living connected to the tree. Help us to commit ourselves to this, Father. In your son's name we pray this. Amen. Our hymn of invitation and commitment is going to be softly and tenderly. We'll sing two verses. Let's stand and sing.